something that uh, I hadn't prepared anybody for this morning, but I think we can accommodate. Deacons, if you can go ahead and take up the offering while I'm speaking here in these next couple minutes. <clears throat> I want to share something with you before we climb into our message this morning, and I want the deacons as they take up the offering as a visual. I'm going through, in response to this a few weeks ago when we recognized some new deacons, I'm going through a time with the deacons, a time of training where I'm trying to equip them with what the deacon does and how the deacon is to do it. And I realize that as I'm training deacons, I need to be training the body too for what this is, what deacons do. So I'm going to share a couple of passages with, with you. You can turn there if you'd like. Acts chapter 4 verse 32 is the first. <clears throat> this is not our message. Message coming in a minute. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it's a passage that's kind of describing the character of the early church. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. I met with the elder or the deacons the other night and shared that passage with them first. And then I took them to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you'd like to turn there, you can. If not, you can just listen. Save yourself for the sermon. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been giving, giving, excuse me, given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. One of the things that's characteristics of, of Paul's ministry is he went all over the Roman Empire as he's planting churches, taking up an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. The saints in Jerusalem were like starving. <laughs> I mean, you would expect, you follow Christ, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose everything. So part of his ministry was characterized by taking up an offering. And here he's referring back to the Macedonians. He's speaking to the Corinthians. And he says, these Macedonians gave according to their means, as I can testify, and even beyond their means. These guys were giving more than they could really afford to give. And it says they were doing this of their own free will. And this is the character of it. They're begging us earnestly. Bless you. Donna Walford. That's the second time you've done that. God bless you. I, my adrenaline is flowing right now. Gracious. We'll pray for you in a minute, Donna. Okay, back to where we were. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. These guys, Corinthians, Paul's saying, these Macedonians, they were poor and they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You know, we don't have anything, but if you're taking up an offering for other believers in Jerusalem, it's on. And then, actually, Paul's describing later, he says in verse 14, he says, actually in verse 13, he says, what he has in mind is sort of this leveling between the haves and the have-nots among the people of God. It's like this otherworldly character of the people of God. And in verse 13, he's saying, I don't mean that the others should be eased and you burdened. He's not trying to encourage the freeloader <laughs> or equip the freeloader to continue to freeload. What he's saying here, he says, as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time, Corinthians, should supply their need, the Jerusalem believers. 
so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Excuse me, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He's talking about this leveling among the people of God. What I prepared the deacons for was the first thing that I want to take them to in these next few months as we work together and train together is that deacons are to collect the gifts of God's people and redistribute them. They're part of collecting and redistributing. What I talked to them about was when they are doing what we just did, where they're taking up an offering, where they are praying, Lord, give me wisdom and insight into those who have a glass that's overflowing and those who have an empty glass. Because the deacons will have a role in connecting the two. So the reason I need to equip you for this is because you may have a deacon that comes to you and says, hey, um, you know, this may seem awkward. This may seem like it's kind of uncultural. <laughs> but it seems like you guys have kind of an overflowing glass. I want to at least present this need to you and ask you to pray about being part of helping this young couple or this single mom. How cool is that? Does that sound like the world? No. Does it sound like the church? It's supposed to. And the deacons be, can be part of that. So I want to prepare you for that. We're going to pray for the deacons here in a minute as we pray for mothers. And we're going to pray for a local church in Royce City. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this morning as we celebrate Mother's Day, we want to first of all just say thank you so much for the tender mercy that you show us in our moms. I think all of us in here or most of us in here can think about sweet acts of mercy and grace that we've seen and we've experienced through our moms. And I'm so thankful for my mother and I'm thankful for the mother that I see at work every day in my home tending to our three little ones. I'm thankful for the mothers in this room. I'm so thankful for the ministry that you've given us and extended to us through their hearts and through their actions as they serve Lord, we pray that today will be special, that they will feel appreciated. Most of all, we pray that they will appreciate you as they serve. Lord, secondly, this morning, we want to pray for a local church. We want to pray for Trinity Baptist Church in Royce City and a Pastor Dal Cottrell. We want to pray for Dal's ministry to his wife first. Lord, I pray that their marriage is blessed. I pray that he is amazed by grace, that as he spends time studying each week, that is spilling over onto his wife and family. Lord, I pray that even beyond that, that it's spilling over onto a people on Sundays as they gather corporately and Wednesdays as they gather corporately. That grace and mercy and gospel and story and a people are on display and a people are being built. Lord, I pray that that's something that puts you at the center. I pray that no man takes the glory for that, but that Dal and the rest of this church are amazed by your grace and your work and your wonder. Lord, we pray for great things for this church, for your glory. We pray that their hearts and ours will never be driven or tempered or affected in any way by a spirit of competition, but that we can truly cheer for each other and want great things for each other because your name is at stake. Lord, we are thankful for the privilege of serving alongside them in this uh, area. Last, Lord, I want to pray for the deacons. And I want to pray for this church. I want to pray for the deacons, for a spirit of faithfulness, and um, wisdom in how to proceed with this charge to um, identify the overflowing glass and connect it with the empty glass. Lord, we pray for a people that are otherworldly in the way that we respond to this. 
pray that your design and your glory and your uh, great riches that you've lavished on a bunch of undeserving people like us is on display in the way the deacons walking this, walk in this. Lord, we turn these next few minutes over to you. We pray that you'll be enjoyed. Pray that your um, truth will be savored. And um, we pray for a sweet work in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> turn to John chapter 14, please. Moms, we love y'all, but we're not going to preach about you this morning. It's uh, just not a very good theme preacher, I don't think. So I've been liberated from that burden to do that. But we do care about you and are thankful for you today. <clears throat> we're in John chapter 14. Let me prepare you where we're going in these next few weeks. This week, next week, and the next will be in verses 12 through 14 of John chapter 14. Let me also prepare those of you who may be here for the first time or the first of a few times or visiting with family. I want you to know what we're doing as a people. We're moving through the Word as a journey and just trying to bring ourselves to the Word. Instead of bringing a topic to the people, we're bringing ourselves to the Word. It's just coming at the Bible from a different direction. And what we've found in these last few years, these last six years of doing this, is that God gives us what we need when we need it. And we, more than we even think we need it come to find out that we're having a we're experiencing together a healthy diet and in his sovereignty he gives us what we need so this morning we're in john chapter 14 verses 12 through 14 i want to just kind of give just a brief overview of where we are these next few chapters 14 through 17 are a sea of red if you have a red letter edition where jesus is just speaking the final hours before he goes to the cross it's sort of a truth concentrate period where he's lived out this gospel in front of them, this story, and then in these chapters, 14 through 17, he's explaining a lot of things, sort of the last few minutes that they have together. Verses 12 through 14, I'll read. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The title of this morning's message is Greater Works Than These. I have to confess to you that as I've read ahead and kind of started preparing for this sermon and these next couple, I've been a little bit troubled. So we're going to deal with some of these things that trouble me and maybe trouble you as you read ahead in these next few minutes. Jesus is telling these guys that have had troubled hearts that you guys who spent the last three years with me that have seen some amazing things are going to do those same sort of things. And in fact, you're going to do even greater things. In the book of John, we have seven of these miracles or seven of these signs that I just want to at least bring out it's not all of them, certainly, not all of them that are recorded because the Gospels have lots of them. But the seven signs that John presents is when he turns water to wine at a wedding in Cana. He turns real water to full-on wine. Not just cheap sherry cooking wine either. Fine wine. In fact, the wine was so fine that whenever they passed it out at the time that they did in the wedding when the other wine had run out, the guy that was the host said, Hey, man, what are you doing bringing the fine stuff out last? He turned water to wine. He healed an official son. This nobleman came to the Lord, and his son was at death's door, and Jesus healed him from afar. 
He healed a guy that had been lame for 38 years. A guy that lay at the pool of Bethesda day by day by day. Likely his family brought him to this pool every day so he could just kind of lay up there hoping that at the precise moment, this is what they believed about the pool of Bethesda. It's actually multiple pools and porticos. They believed that what would happen at this pools of Bethesda is that periodically an angel would show up and stir the waters up. And if you just happened to be the first one to plop in the pool, when the water was stirred up, you'd be healed. So imagine this guy spending 38 years lame, likely most of his life, sitting in the same old rotten spot next to this pool, looking over at the water. Sure wish this water would stir up. Jesus walks up to him, tells him to get up, pick up his mat, and walk. Some pretty amazing stuff. He fed multitudes, thousands of people with loaves and fishes. He walked on water. He showed that he's not bound by things like gravity and density. H2O bows to him. He did some amazing things. He healed a man that had been blind his entire life. A man that spent his days by the gate begging. Can I have some money because I'm blind and I can't hold down a job because I can't do anything? Can I have some money, please? He heals the man that's been blind his entire life. And then really the crescendo of these signs. He takes a man that's been dead and decaying. A man four days dead. You know what it feels like or you know, you know what it smells like when you've had a cast on your arm? And you take that cast off and you're like, woo, man, that's raunchy. Imagine an entire body decaying that way. Lazarus is four days dead in a sealed tomb. Jesus says, crack it open. And everybody goes, woo, that's raunchy. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Raised a man from rigor mortis to walk. That's some pretty amazing work. So when you really take in this promise, you have to stop and go, whoa. He's making a pretty amazing claim and promise to his disciples that the one believing in him will not only do things like he's done, those amazing things we just read, and many others, but even greater works than these. And you know what? The apostles, then disciples, that heard those words, they did those things in greater Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It bound to have been somebody that's saying, too, Aren't these the same dudes that were running like chickens seven weeks ago at Passover when this Jesus was crucified? 
Aren't these the same chickens of Passover who are now the preachers of Pentecost? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Seven weeks after the Lord promised that you'll do as great works as me and even greater, this is a greater work. Peter goes on to preach, and it ends in verse 41, the little section here where it says, Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter preaches at Pentecost, the chicken of Passover is now the preacher of Pentecost. He preaches and 3,000 people are added to their number. More than in Christ's entire ministry. And tongues of fire show up. And he's speaking and everybody's hearing in their own language. He says, you're going to do great works. And you're going to do even greater works than these. Look at chapter 3. Verse 1. Now, Peter and John, two dudes who sat there and heard that promise seven weeks earlier. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And y'all know the story. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. You know how that little kid song goes. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So just in a couple of chapters, you've got Pentecost, tongues of fire, preaching in multiple languages, thousands of people coming to Christ. You have healing. Look at chapter 5. Verse 1 we got to take in these moments. Our hearts ought to race as we're thinking about these first few weeks of the life of the church unfolding. These guys that sat and listened to Jesus saying, you're going to do great works, and in fact, you're going to do even greater works. Seven weeks later, maybe ten weeks later by this point, where that promise is being fulfilled. Amazing, heart-racing things taking place. This one's pretty sobering. Chapter 5, verse 1, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. You have to wonder what Ananias and Sapphira thought. You know, hey, are we just going to work extra in the nursery to make up for what we're not given financially, what we've committed to? Are we just going to kind of help out in some other way to make up for the fact that we are withholding? And Peter said, Ananias, Peter, the same chicken of of Passover, the preacher of Pentecost, seven weeks later, how many weeks later this is, says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your own heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. 
dropped Stone Cold dead. Sapphira shows up a little bit later, and the story goes the same way. Peter asks Sapphira, what's up, Sapphira? She says, well, you know, she dropped Stone Cold dead. Behold, the guys that carried your husband out are about to carry you out. Jesus promised him, he said, you're going to do great works, and in fact, you'll do even greater works. There are other occasions where the disciples raised people from the dead. Peter raised a woman named Tabitha, or Dorcas. She had two names. Paul raised somebody that fell asleep in one of his sermons from the dead. That's right. You might want to know why I was so urgent. In fact, what happened is the boy sitting up in the rafters. His name was Eutychus. He's sitting up, and you think we have space issues sometimes. That's why we're leaving our rafters exposed in our new building. <laughs> Eutychus is sitting up in the rafters, and he got sleepy and fell out and, I guess, broke his neck. He's, he's dead. And Paul says, no, he's asleep. Goes over there, gives him his life back. These guys were pretty amazing. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, those guys who had heard that promise seven weeks earlier. They're doing what he said they would do. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that even They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. Listen, that as Peter came strolling through the streets, that at least his shadow might fall on some of them and they could be healed. That's pretty amazing. I don't ever see anything like that happening with Jesus. What he promised them, greater works are actually unfolding in the lives of this, these apostles in the early church. So here's why I've been troubled. i got to ask the question. I mean, if we're going to believe what we're reading, we've got to ask the question, so what happened? 2,000 years later, what's happened? Where are the great works now? Where are the dead being raised to life? And where are the ones that are raising them? to life. If I'm looking at this honestly, I've got to ask that question, where are the healings? And when I say healings, I mean healings. I'm not talking about toothaches. Somebody here has the toothache. Be healed. I'm not talking about these invisible back issues like, ooh. I'm talking like withered legs, taking on flesh and standing up and jumping and running around. I'm talking about people that have been completely blind going, man, I see, leaping around. Where is all this stuff? Why are we not seeing these things anymore? We're going to go three places this morning, three questions, three hard questions. Has our faith decayed? That's the first place. The second place is, is this happening now? And the third question is, Was this a unique time? So the first place, let's go to the hard question. Has our faith decayed? Do we have less faith now than they did 2,000 years ago? Do we, could we possibly trust too much in what we see? Could we possibly trust too much in modern medicine? Has our faith deteriorated over the ages. 
Friday morning, I was up getting breakfast for Daniel. He came down and uh, announced that he'd kept his pull-up dry, and we celebrated, you know, the morning ritual. Did you do it? We did it, so we celebrated, and then he said, I, I need some breakfast, so please. So uh, he sits down, and he starts complaining about some ant bites he got the night before at the park. He had some ant bites on his ankle, and he said, you know, even my stomach hurts. So I said, okay, well, we have two responses anytime one of the kids has a bobo. He's, Daniel's five. You know, that stuff happens a lot for a five-year-old, and it's always much worse than it actually is. So we have two responses. Either we call the imaginary Dr. Duplachin. We pick up the phone and act like we're dialing, and Dr. Duplachin, yeah, he's got some ant bites. What do you think we ought to do? Uh, you, oh, you want us to tickle him? Oh, okay. All right. Yes, sir. We'll take care of that. Bye. So we tickle him, and he laughs, and then we move on with life. But if that doesn't work, then we have to go with plan B. And plan B is usually, and it was this morning, well, Daniel, let me go to the bathroom and go grab some of that antibiotic, anti-itch cream. If you can't find that, just find some sort of ointment. Vaseline would be fine. <laughs> find some substance that will let him think that he is being tended to. But I did that. I found some actual antibiotic, anti-itch cream. And I came back, and I put it on his little bug bites, little ant bites on his ankle, and he said, that oh, feels better. About three minutes later, he said, that feels better. And you know what? Even my stomach feels better. <laughs> it's amazing. But you know what? It was moments later that I realized, this is on Friday of this week, so I'm neck deep in preparing this sermon. In fact, it's mostly finished by this point. And I realized that here I am, Neck deep in considering this question, where are the healings now? And I had wasted some ant bites. I realized what I did with these ant bites is I made a beeline to the medicine cabinet. And not even for a moment did I say, Daniel, you know what? Let's talk to God about those ant bites. And then let's go get some medicine. I realized I'd wasted some ant bites. And you can't think that this has no impact on a five-year-old faith. A little five-year-old faith is being equipped for a 50-year-old faith. And if we make a beeline to the medicine cabinet, are we surprised when we don't see some mighty things happen when we don't go to God anymore? And we're conditioned to only going to God when things really get bad. I'll never forget the time when I was in a church service in South Carolina. Christy and I were part of a church in Columbia, South Carolina. I'll never forget the time when we were sitting there. It's a big church, probably two or 3,000 people. Imagine that we were part of a church that has a big choir loft, hundreds of people in the choir loft. It's kind of all that, always a weird thing when you can see people during the sermon and they can see you. You're kind of keeping tabs on each other. You know who's sleeping. But I'm listening to the preacher, and out of my peripheral vision, he's preaching. It's the middle of the sermon. Out of my peripheral vision, I see this woman kind of slump over. And it was beyond snoozing. It was, in fact, it was even beyond distress. Something was wrong with this woman. She slumped over, and the next thing I know, I'm looking at her, and she falls out of her chair on the floor. And then, again, this is during the sermon, and there's a commotion that takes place while the choir members are trying to tend to this woman who's just completely passed out. We don't know if she's had a heart attack or what. But the preacher turns, he sees what's taking place, and the first thing he does, I think, is the right thing to do. He says, let us pray. So 3,000 people prayed for this woman by name. And then he said, in Jesus' name, amen. 
And then the next thing he did is the appropriate thing to do. He said, are there any physicians here this morning? Please render aid to this woman who's passed out up here. It's a beautiful picture of what it seems like we should be about as the people of God. I wasted some ant bites. Thankfully, my preacher out in South Carolina didn't waste a woman passing out. He took us, made a beeline to the Lord, and then said, let's go have some medical attention. It cannot be innocuous that we make a beeline with our children and our people and our families to the doctor prayerlessly. It cannot be innocent. And then if the medicine doesn't work or the doctors are baffled, then we really start praying. Then we take it to God. Could we possibly see more amazing things if we made a beeline to God first? I have to tell you, too, turn to James chapter 5. As you're turning, I want to tell you, this is not an anti-medicine message. I believe in medicine. I'm so full of of allergy medicines right now, I can't even describe to you. (laughs) Half the time, I don't know where I am. In fact, last Sunday, I took two singular, and I'm supposed to take one a day. I took two before preaching, and I was a zombie last week. I don't know if y'all noticed it, but... I was a zombie. I believe that medicine is a good thing. James chapter 5 shows us a great picture of what this should look like in the people of God. James chapter 5 verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And verse 14 is key. He says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's a great picture of the appropriate response to ant bites or cancer. Let's pray about it and then anoint them with oil. Let me explain what that is. In that day, they believed that oil had some medicinal value. This is back even before the day where they gave people bleedings. I feel bad. Okay, here's a bleeding. There's about a gallon of blood. This is their early view of medicine. Put some oil on it. So what's taking place here is... James is encouraging, if someone is sick in the people of God, call for the elders, pray about it, and then go see a doctor. (gasps) There's nothing wrong with that. But make a beeline to the Lord first. The works of healing may have decayed over time because we've lost the faith in the God that can work that way now. Maybe we've made a beeline to modern medicine or Dr. Duplichan, or whatever your fix is. We've made a beeline to some other fix other than God. Turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. I want to show you a couple of passages that were written to churches. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes to a church. You've got to keep this in mind. In fact, he writes to a bunch of churches. Over in verse 3 or verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. Now, we're a church 2,000 years later, but we're a church. And this letter is for us too. He writes to the churches of Galatia, and in verse 5 of chapter 3, he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Someone is working miracles among this church. 
Does he who works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. It's a passage that Brad read this morning. I want us to take a closer look at it. First Corinthians chapter 12, also to a church. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want to be uninformed. I do not want you to be uninformed. And then in verse 4, he says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. This is a letter written to a church, and in this church, it's not even this spectacular, amazing, godly church. The Corinthian church was made up of a bunch of boneheads, and in this church, there are legitimate gifts of healing taking place and workings of miracles. So we, 2,000 years later, can't just dismiss this as out of the realm of possibility because these are examples of letters written to churches where things like that are going on. And we have to soberly ask the question and wonder the sweet works that we could see if we sought him first and sought him urgently. Where the church is brand new in foreign lands where they don't have access to modern medicine and they make a beeline to the Lord, there are accounts where they see some pretty amazing things. Some pretty amazing healings, some pretty amazing miracles, and I'm not talking toothache healings talking some amazing things because maybe they run there first and they run there urgently and we have to soberly address the reality that if we trust here in 2009 here in Greenville Texas if we trust in modern medicine more than God then the best we'll ever see is the best modern medicine has to offer I'm thankful for it I believe that the Lord uses it but we as the people of God have got a hope for bigger greater things. Maybe our faith has decayed over the last 2,000 years, one ant bite at a time. Second thing I want to deal with is, is this happening now? Are there some places where these healings are really happening now? I mentioned that in foreign lands where they don't have make a beeline to medicine because they can't, that there are accounts where people have had seen very real miracles, very real healings. But let's talk about a guy like Benny Hinn. Let's talk about a place like here stateside, Benny Hinn and supposed faith healers. Is Benny Hinn faithful in this area? Has his faith not decayed and ours has? Let's examine him for a minute. I need to say right up front as I take you to this passage and back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that I believe these healers are terribly suspect. But I don't want, because they are such a caricature, to dismiss the whole realm of possibility. They make it easy to dismiss the possibility that healings can take place today when you look at a caricature like that. You say, no way. Let me take you biblically 
to chapter 12, verse 9. It's a passage I just read. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. In the original language, that's actually gifts of healings. And notice that gifts of healings is one of the only things listed there that does not have a the in front of it, a definite article. What this seems to point to is what he's describing here is a list of things that take place in the church. But when he gets to gifts of healings, the fact that it's plural and no definite article seems to point to a moving gift. It seems to point to something that moves around the body. That there's not like this self-professed, funny, jacket-wearing healer. There doesn't seem to be this one person in the New Testament church or the early church who has this, the, definite article, gift, singular, of healing. It seems to be a mobile gift that moves around the body. Here's an example of someone who was an amazing healer, Paul. You know, some of the things Paul did, we mentioned it already. Eutychus, the guy that fell asleep during the sermon, he gave him his life back. He healed and did some pretty amazing things, but he couldn't heal himself. He had a thorn in the flesh that we believe was some sort of ailment that he couldn't heal. He also wasn't able to heal Timothy's stomach. The best he had for Timothy was, hey, go drink some wine. Get a little wine on your stomach, and maybe that'll make your stomach feel better. Paul also... Couldn't heal Epaphroditus from a life-threatening sickness. He couldn't heal Trophimus, whom he left ill at Miletus. This guy who was an amazing healer didn't own this thing and could just give it out willy-nilly. It looks like it's a mobile gift that moved around the body, and sometimes God healed and sometimes he didn't. A key passage that I hadn't read yet that Brad read read earlier is in chapter 12, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians. All these things that he's listed there are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The person that sets them up as a self-professed healer that's got this thing that he can just give out wherever he wants is terribly suspect. Now, The last question that I want to take intention with the things that we've just dealt with is, was this a unique time? Was there something going on unique in the life of the church? And I have to tell you right up front, this was a christening time of the church. The signs and wonders seemed to accompany the developing work of God and the baby infant church. These undeniable black and white withered legs taking on flesh dancing, jumping, blind people seeing, dead people getting up and walking, those sort of healings, these black and white healings seem to be authenticating this new story. They seem to be validating the storytellers, the apostles that are teaching and preaching. This was a very unique time in the life of the church. There's strong evidence biblically That when he said, whoever believes in me will do these great works and greater, that he was especially, not exclusively, but especially talking to the apostles, then disciples. I'll give you some examples. Turn to Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start with Jesus as the model. This is Peter's famous sermon at Pentecost. Speaking of Christ, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
as you yourself know. A man attested to you as the son of God by the works, the wonders, and the signs that he did. Now look down the page, verse 43. Actually, it's on the next page in my Bible. Now watch who the workers are in these mighty works. Verse 43, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Through the apostles. Turn to chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. It seems to be as this thing unfolds, this Acts story, that there was an especial, an especially important work taking place through the hands of the apostles. And it's one that may not be reproducible right now. It's one that may not be dependent on our faith right now. Turn to Acts chapter 14, verse 3. Paul and Barnabas are planting churches, and it says, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In the next page, chapter 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It seems to be a very special emphasis for the apostles and those who served with them like Barnabas, like Stephen. Some mighty works and signs that took place in the early church Paul spent a large part of his time having to defend his apostleship with the Corinthian church. In the second letter to the church at Corinth, he's defending his apostleship with those signs and wonders that I did. Remember? Those things proved me an apostle. We have to take this reality in view with the others, that this was a very unique time in redemptive history, and the apostles were and will ever be unique. We have to take this intention with the other promises that whoever believes on me will do these mighty works and even greater works. We take those intention. So where are we to stand? I think we need to stand where we make a beeline to God first as the people of God. We should be a little bit concerned about this. We should wonder where are these mighty works and we should be hopeful. And we should pray about ant bites and cancer and everything in between. We should take our five-year-olds to, to our Lord, to the great physician. We should take our 50-year-olds to the Lord, the great physician. We should race there, make a beeline there, because he says, whoever believes in me will do the works that, he, that I have done and will do greater works. We should hope and pray for mighty things. We should not waste our ant bites. Secondly, We should not be discouraged if our shadow doesn't heal our family and friends. We shouldn't walk around frustrated and discouraged because our shadow doesn't heal family and friends because we can be part of an even greater work, even greater work than a healing. That's where we're going to go next week is to unpack the greater great that's promised here in John chapter 14. Let me pray.
Lord, in light of this message, in light of these realities that we've engaged in these last few minutes, we pray for mighty things. Lord, we confess, I confess, that I typically make a beeline for the medicine cabinet or a beeline for Dr. Duplichain or a beeline for Dr. Justice and I waste ant bites and fever and only in the most extreme cases do I come to you urgently. Lord, I ask personally for forgiveness. I ask on behalf of this people that we can reflect even in the small things a recognition that you are Lord over all things and that we could see some mighty things possibly if we raced to you first. Lord, I pray that you will arrest us with that burden and that urgency. Secondly, Lord, I am thankful that you are a God of mystery. I'm thankful that the Spirit apportions to who he will when he wills these gifts. We recognize that, we confess that, we believe that. And Lord, we pray that we are poised and ready to receive those sort of events when you bring them, if you bring them. We trust you, Lord, and we just pray that our faithlessness, our decayed faith will not stand in the way of you doing something that could bring glory to you. Lord, all of that in the same breath, we are thankful that we are reading about a unique time. We are reading about the word being unfolded and written and recorded and the New Testament being completed and the church being uh, born. Lord, we are thankful that the word was authenticated through signs and wonders and works and I thank you that that's happening even today in foreign lands. Lord, we pray that in your sovereign will when you want something like that to happen that we will be ready to receive it and not unbelieving. Lord, we love you with everything in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship in song.